supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writing critic Brett Nehru. Hey, guys. Now we're, it's one of our final shows for the year, so we come into summer blockbuster season. Next week is a massive week. We can't wait to tell you about it later in the program. But first of all, this week, we are covering later in the episode the Golden Globe nominations, which are out this week. Little Women, which will have previews this week. And Golden Globes, which have no women. Yeah. Yep. And a surprise film. Yes, it's not available in Australia, but we want to talk to you about it anyway. Because we like it. And first of all, though, we're going to talk about a film, the Taika Waititi's new fit feature, which is in cinemas, possibly a big awards contender, come Boxing Day, which is Jojo Rabbit. First, we just want to note, um, we it's coming to the Christmas season time. We just had the 2SER Christmas season and our own 2SER awards, because 2SER have their own awards. Christmas party slash awards night. Yeah. 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 You're all sold if, if you feel sad because you didn't win anything, like us, there's a bar <laughs> tab to compensate. But we, we appreciate, we were nominated, which was lovely. We were nominated for Talks Producing and Best Talks Program, which we really do appreciate. Thanks so to us, yeah. Yeah, but it's not about nomination. It's about winning, and we did not win. Yeah, I, Life I, is not about I, consolation prizes, Glenn. I, I watched, true story, I watched Tropic Thunder, rewatched it today, and there's a great bit where, um, what's his name, Tug Speedman is saying, it's just an honor to be nominated. Were you nominated? No, I wasn't, but it would have been an honor. And we were nominated, so we appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't know where you were going with that film. <laughs> most of it, it's, but, it's a bit from Tropic Thunder. Completely forgotten. All I can remember from that film was Tom Cruise dancing. Yeah, and a couple of great playing lines Harvey from Weinstein, Dan Jr. essentially. Oh, he's so he's the best thing about the movie. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, you can take your certificate of nomination that I can see right now in front of you. Yeah, I'm holding it up. I'm holding it. it up. Yeah, waving it. Yeah. Okay, so before a fight breaks out over the Christmas party, let's move on to Jojo, Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> yes, it premiered at the Jewish International Film Festival on November 21st, the Australian premiere, and screened at the, uh, locally at different venues, the Ritz included. It is in Cinema's Compoxing, it's a new film from Thor and What We Do in the Shadows, director Taika Waititi. It is a starring Scarlett Johansson, Sam Rockwell, Rob Wilson, Thomas and McKenzie from um, Live No Trace. Trace, an upcoming performer. And uh, what's his name from Extras? Stephen Merchant. Who was one of my favorite things about this film. It is a what is a anti-hate satire, as has oh been labeled God. by Taika Waititi. I absolutely hate that marketing where it's like, you, we're bringing out a movie with Hitler and we know that you know, there are actual Nazis around, so we need to make it super, super obvious, even though it's incredibly obvious that, like, you could not watch this movie and think it's taking the side of Hitler. You could not, you know, it's so apparent that the Nazis are uh, a laughing stock, you know, from any 30-second sample of the movie. But, you know, because we're all idiots in 2019, the posters have in massive text, like, an anti-hate satire, guys. We don't like Hitler. But but actually, I think that's part of the point, and I think that's part of the problem, where I think we are kind of living in that stupid times that there are enough people out there who can actually believe that. Yeah, we well, need to really th- th- spell it out. This gets I mean, to one of the problems we have with the film, culture. but first... Let's explain a little bit what it's about. Um, Hitler is played uh, by Taika Waititi, who, as Taika Waititi has really said, he's of Polynesian Jewish background, yeah. so it is a joke in and of it's itself. Maori Hitler, you know. And he is the imaginary friend of Jojo Rabbit, a young boy in the Hitler Youth. Jojo Betstrap. You betcha. Oh, so yes. jo- Johannes, Johannes Betstrap, right? That's right. Who yeah. gets renamed Jojo Rabbit by 
Nazis at a summer camp. Run by Sam Rockwell's character and Rebel Wilson's character, both whom are in the uh, trainers in the SS. You also have Scarlett Johansson playing JoJo's mother. This is another piece of very deliberate casting. Uh, Scarlett Johansson is obviously meant to evoke in the context of this universe a typical blonde, blue-eyed... Aryan goddess. However, the actress is, of course, Jewish. And she plays somebody fighting the regime from within. Yeah. So this was one of the big hits coming out of the Toronto International Film Festival. It won the Audience Award, actually, making it a big uh, threat for Best Picture because that historically has been a big predictor. Really? Really? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Audience awarded, too. Yeah. There's been a lot of mixed reporting on this film, mostly middling to positive. I have very mixed views on this. I feel there's three very distinct tones running through this film. One is the over the very camp of Sam Rockwell and Rebel Wilson, which is one of my favorite aspects of the film. One is Taika Waititi's comedy, which is operating a whole other level and very distinct from the rest of the movie. And the third is actually dramatic. The most, the, the core of the film is drama. The best bits for me were the dramatic bits, mostly most of which involved Scarlett Johansson. I liked a lot of this film, but as a tonal mashup, I think it let itself down, and there were whole sections which I found wholly frustrating. Okay, um... I basically found the film a failure, but it goes down smoothly enough because Taika Waititi is just very skilled at putting together an entertaining package. Um, it's fast-paced. There's a lot of detail in the the production design and the, and the compositions. It reminds of Wes Anderson in some respects and the very kind of um, storybook-looking feel. Very Moonrise Kingdom. Very Moonrise Kingdom, especially when you see the, the summer camp at the beginning. Um and I think there's a lot of great performances that elevate it. Thomasin McKenzie shows that L- Leave No Trace was no fluke. Um, this is a very different character. She's and a huge, huge feature ahead of her. Yeah, she absolutely nails it. Um, I thought a lot of the comedic um, supporting roles were funny. I thought Rebel Wilson was funny. Stephen Merchant in his little bit was hilarious. A, um, a parody of, I forget the name of the, ca- the character from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the guy with the coat yes. hanger. He's basically taking the piss out of this guy. Yeah, and he's playing, he's playing a um, uh, Gestapo... Gestapo, yeah, (laughs) officer. Um, But the biggest thing for me um, is that, as you say, it alternates between drama and comedy, and for the most part, outside of a few moments, I didn't find it dramatically successful or funny. Okay. Uh, Part of the problem that I have with the film, and I think we should discuss this more, is about the kind of humour this film is going for. Because if you look at the film, we're trying to lampoon the Nazis, and that is kind of the problem the film has to begin with. Because the Nazis are evil people, and it's difficult to make fun of something if the inherent point about him is evil to begin with. So, when you take them as, you know, caricatures, as lampooning kind of, you know, somebody to laugh at, like let's say Stephen Merchant, the Gestapo character, when you know the real Gestapo were very evil and dangerous to begin with, I actually it makes it hard to take them seriously as real threats. Well, I dis- I disagree. I actually Gretchen. think specifically that scene, though I did find Stephen Merchant hilarious, I think they actually did have a menace and a threat to them in that scene, which I didn't find for a lot of the film. I thought actually that was one of the few times when the comedy and the, the threat of the Nazis was like properly balanced. And you can when it's such an absurd figure. Certainly Mel Brooks uh, in the classic R-Type did this with the producers to great effect many, many years ago. We see him do that. We saw him do this in subsequent projects to lesser effect. Um, but there's been no shortage of lampooning Nazis and far-right figures over the years. Um, I think it's more successful when you're dealing with the Sam Rockwell and Rebel Wilson characters because they're, while they are absurd figures, it's very grounded. And the, the one-liners are grounded in a sadly very hateful ideology, which um, is just subverted for extreme comic ends. And, and, and especially in a, a couple, some of their, the final sequences of the film, done very well. 
I, I, I get what you're saying, but there are two types of Nazis in the film. One is the good-hearted, but essentially thick-headed Nazis, a.k.a. the right, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. You know, the, they are Nazis, but they're not evil-intentioned Nazis. They're just brainwashed Nazis. Yeah. And then there's the other kind of Nazis in the film, the Stephen Merchant types, who are the real threat mm. because they're the establishment Nazis, essentially. Uh, so in, even in that sense, you know, it's difficult to really understand what the film is going for because it doesn't really know in terms of its tonality what it's, who the real bad guys well, are, essentially. my issue with it is more... Um, it's not that I don't think that you should make a mockery of the Nazis, but I think it's kind of the way that it comes at this. It's very self-satisfied. Like, look at these people. Aren't they stupid because they believe this stupid thing? Ha, ha, ha. But that doesn't really go down so smoothly in the current context we have where far-right fascism is emerging. Yep. And it's clear that you can believe in this. Um, I think it's it's way more beneficial and valuable to have a view that allows for the idea that people can get led astray. But this movie is reassuring. Anyone in the audience who watches it feels safely like, I am not one of these people. I could not become like that because there's no... Um, I, I think the film... I, I'm not going to say it's so it's completely simple in the depiction because it does try to show how there are social pressures that encourage people to become Nazis and how in looking at how Jojo basically has been programmed and how the program, you know, by positive reinforcement for towing the, the line. But I think the way that it marks people aside, like the, like setting up humor about how they don't know what's going to happen historically. And we get to feel smug about ourselves because we know that, or aren't they silly because they believe in this thing? It just it it's too lacking in understanding. Um, it's way more interesting to ask why and how that kind of thing comes along. I don't think that did happen. I think they wanted to set up arcs for two characters: one being the JoJo character, and one to an extent being the Sam Rockwell character, where they say this is a core. This ideology is a cause of pressure and evil and social conditioning and you see them unlike other characters in the film and the Sam Rockwell arc is actually really interesting and it's really subtle the Jojo arc it's really clear it's spelled out of these interactions with another character it's very blatant with Sam Rockwell it's just kind of left to the side of the subtle and but having said that it worked to an extent with Sam Rockwell because he's such a talented actor this is the most interesting aspect of the film but and, and he is great in this he's really really funny and believable but who wasn't especially great um the main actor, I'm sorry, I don't have his name on hand. He was fine, he was serviceable, but the fact is, he wasn't. He, he was the character, the guy who played Jojo Rabbit, was in every single sequence in the film. And he's there were people around him doing quite who were very veterans of the scene, doing quite interesting stuff, but he just wasn't anywhere on the level of Thompson McKenzie or any of the others in the film. And that did let it down to some extent. Let's talk about Taika Waititi playing an imaginary Hitler because yeah. that is the biggest problem that I have with the film. Especially because the way he's playing it is essentially the audience problem. Because the audience this film is targeted towards is essentially your liberal Saturday Night Live watching audience who are already in on the joke. Yeah. You know, they're already lampooning uh, this idea of Nazism in the 21st century and the kind of people who would make fun of Trump and Trump supporters. Except we now live in a world that those supporters are now in power and that's a reality that we have to you know, confront. 
and making jokes about them in a very yeah. kind of disgruntled, superficial way is not going to I actually think, yeah. service I th- anything. I or think anyone. this film, in a lot of ways, is ten years too late. Both like politically, it doesn't sit right to go this. To it's be a sketch. So it's a much smaller problem. It's sketch comedy. There's there's two, and I'll say two and a half scenes I liked with Taika Waititi. One at the very beginning, one towards the end. I agree. And one yeah. Chris and I were talking about in the middle, which was okay. The thing is, it's it's a one. It's the same with what we do in the shadows. It's a five minute joke for sketch comedy which is elongated throughout an entire film and it can't sustain itself. Sketch comedy can't sustain itself in the feature length. The thing about Waititi is um, I liked seeing the emergence of the angry Hitler because um, I was so sick by that point of the goofy Hitler and the shtick. As you say, it's a very surface-level, simple joke that just gets repeated ad nauseum. You know, haha, isn't it funny that Hitler is here and he's black and he's goofy? I'm going to make a more controversial point. I think this film worked, like we've already discussed, worked much better as a drama, and I would have preferred if this film was actually a dramatic film throughout. As I understand it, the book is... Sorry, the film's adapted from a book that's way more dramatic. The comedy is much more um, dry satire, and it goes in much darker directions. Because the Thomas and Mackenzie scenes are actually the scenes that actually have the most impact. Oh, she's so good. She starts with a a bit of a horror parody, and then uh, works one to a very grounded performance. The other excellent actress in the film, we talked in the context of the marriage a couple of weeks ago, how underrated an actress Scarlett Johansson is. My two favorite scenes in the film uh, both involved her. My favorite dramatic scene was one with her at a dinner table impersonating another character. The, the thing about She's excellent. She always is. is. Watching her transform. But going back to what, um, is, is her name Elsa? Uh, I'll, I'll just check. Yeah, the, the going back to the, the Jewish girl hiding in the attic that Thomas and McKenzie plays. I agree. Dramatically, she really foregrounds it and make, makes the film come to life. However, I can't say that I was really sold by this film on a dramatic level because I just didn't buy into the Rosie. relationship. Rosie, right. So Elsa is the Thomas and McKenzie character. Right. Yeah, I'm so weak, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just didn't buy into the relationship between Jojo and Elsa. I By the end of the film, with the place that it goes to, I just thought, really? I think like, never. It- I, I think it's just that... He is not a good enough actor, and the scenes don't really rise beyond cliches. And the platitudes. There were just so platitudes, many platitudes exactly. that mainly the Mackenzie character came with. And it's all these aha, gotcha moments, which resonate great with, um, you know, pin drop, oh, that kids, that's why you shouldn't hate. And it's not an illegitimate message, but it doesn't work in dramatic form. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's, pl- it's playing at such a dumb level as when the comedy comes, and when that simple level seeps into the drama, I think it lets the film down. And we should also call out the other main, you know, highlight of the performances, which was the best friend. I think he was a scene stealer in whichever scenes he was. Ah, uh, he was, he was, he was charming. It's he was charming, but because it's also it's like also I'm getting sick of that kind of stuck comedy from Taika. No, but also the, the fact that you know, because maybe the main lead was so insipid when his best friend came on, yeah, he clearly he stole the show. And I was like, I want more scenes with them together because he's clearly having a lot more fun. But the, th- the thing is, with all these side characters and the main relationship not feeling developed enough, I started to find the film to be overstuffed. Like, there's, there's so many characters and so many side plots, and yet you don't really feel much in terms of the what the film is really going for. No, and the thing is, and it's a yes, the centerpiece of the film in terms of publicity is Taika Waititi playing Hitler, but you know what? You, it's actually not essential dramatically or comically. You could have taken it out of the film and it would have worked just as well, if not better. I agree. I agree. It should have been a dramatic film. So that is Jojo Rabbit. It is in cinemas come Boxing Day. We'll be back in a moment talking all things Little Women, Golden Globes, and our film of the week. Surpriseful. Psychedelic Sunday. I'm 
Mr. Suit. And I'm King, OPP, spinning records for your pleasure every Sunday afternoon. We've got psychedelic records, soul records, and... <laughs> Downright we Oh, yeah. <laughs> Join us Sundays from midday for Psychedelic Sunday. 2SER 107.3. Strap yourselves in. Enjoy, Enjoy the ride. ride. <laughs> January witnessed something unforgettable. Grammy Award-winning R&B superstar Solange Knowles returns to Sydney Opera House with the exclusive Australian premiere of her groundbreaking new show, Witness. Featuring over 30 musicians and performers, this spectacular show reimagines songs from her acclaimed albums, A Seat at the Table and When I Get Home. Don't miss the show of the summer. Book now for Solange. Four shows only from January 27 at sydneyoperahouse.com to SER sponsors. And welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we are talking Golden Globes. Nominations came out from the Hollywood Foreign Press just today. Our best motion picture drama, 1917, The Irishman, Joker, Marriage Story, and Two Popes. Demi Netflix having a good time, and musical picture and comedy, Dolomite is my name, Jojo Rabbit just discussed, Knives Out, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Rocketman. There's been Marriage Story seems to be the big Winner from the nominations, though Noah Baumbach notably was not nominated. Um, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite has been nominated for Best Director, as a Sam Mendes for 1917, and Todd Phillips from Joker, which we're talking about outside. Very strange choice when Noah Baumbach and others have not been nominated. Yeah, um, I found uh, the direction in Joker to be, you know, good, fine. But serviceable. Not serviceable, not, not especially extraordinary. Um, and I'll be on the minority in thinking that 1917 probably shouldn't be up here. I'm, but um, yeah. but the thing you know um, but that that's something we'll get into in January. But the the but it seems, seems like it's designed to give Bong Joon Ho the the gong for this one. Yeah, honestly, out of that Bong's list, gong. Yeah, Bong's gong. Um, yeah, it, it's great that Bong Joon Ho has has had so much success with this film that he's and become, best screenplay nomination. Yeah, too. that he's become basically undeniable. Um, I, I appreciate that, but the the reason this frustrated me is that Marriage Story led the n- nominations and yet missed out on Best Director. And Marriage Story is superbly directed, so if they loved the film, why did it miss out? And the only reason I can come come to in my mind is the belief that like, oh, this is an interior drama with people talking, therefore it's just script and performance driven. No, like, no, no, there's another reason. The direction and is superb. It's that, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's so just belittling towards the Los Angeles style of filmmaking and cinema. Maybe that's uh, it. And, and I, I can't see them rewarding that. No, I think I think that it's just an unsophisticated approach where um, if a movie is considered to have spectacle, so, you know, Joker has, like, explosions and people running and shooting yeah, each other. Yeah, that's where the Academy is going as well, right? Therefore, yeah. that, that equals great direction and not appreciating the whole, you know, the whole craft. But anyway, um, but even, even then, there were other examples like Luli Wang's *The Farewell* could have been nominated. Yeah, look, could have been nominated. it was. Yeah, but *The Farewell* was nominated for best no, foreign language film, no, as was *Pain and Glory* and *Lame Miss*. As, as a director, right. Luli Wang could have been nominated. Even Celine Sciamma could have been nominated. For oh, people. where's *Portrait of a Lady* on fire and all yeah, this? People I mean, are wow. a disgrace. People, it's way *Portrait of a Lady* on fire is way too subtle, I think, to be that and big too good. success with these people. But <laughs> the thing <laughs> about the thing there's always a film that's <laughs> too good to get nominated. Isn't that sad that like a film is? too good to the, be like that's nominated. every time the thing is that um the golden globes suck people are compl- no but look people are complaining about no women being nominated my stance on this is um yes it would be good to um try to consider basic basically it's the affirmative action argument yes it is is good to promote 
female nominees. Um, well, the thing is, however, in this like, case, they're I actually be, really good. I would be okay with it if the fi- if there were five really extraordinary, undeniably good male directors. But when you're putting up someone like Todd Phillips or and Sam, Sam Mendes, Mendes, it's like, just nominate Lulu Wang. Yeah, she did a good job. Oh, great! You know? Farewell actually, is exponentially even, better Greta than Joker. Women. It is actually not not even Lulu Wang. I think Greta Goig. Yeah, for Little Women. Really that's uh, gender issues. We'll that Celine Sciamma was nominated for Portugalian and Fire is ridiculous. Yeah, well, it is. But welcome to the Oscars and the Golden Globes. Every year, there's amazing foreign language films that don't get in. It's it's a rare fluke that people like Bong Joon-ho and Pedro Almodovar are able to cross yeah. over, or Michael Haneke. And an, it usually doesn't happen. On an acting category too, Antonio Banderas is nominated for Best should Actor, we sh- thankfully. I think should we just be happy that Bong Joon-ho is getting all this kind of crossover praise and appeal? To some extent, I would say yes. I think to mean, make no it, American remake of Parasite, dear me. I think, I think to make it in as a foreign language film director, you need to have established ties. Bong Joon-ho has had a long career where he's made, you know, he's made movies with Hollywood stars, with some American money in the case of Okja. And that means that, you know, he has friends in Hollywood now, so he's more likely to get in. I think that's it's as simple as that, you know. Uh, it's You've got to be Pedro Almodovar, who'd been cranking out great movies for like t- 15, 20 years before he got his first nomination. Or you've got to have friends in Hollywood like Quaron. Yeah, um, Chris alluded to this at the beginning of the year um, when I was out of town, but I've been watching the Oscars and the Golden Globes every year since 1998. I watched it re- religiously. I used to take time off work just to enjoy it because it's a tradition. I didn't watch them this year because I'm just tired of them. And I see it continuing this tradition of just continuously refusing to award real quality or even recognize really quality films can i just say how funny it is that um the golden globes recognize that the lion king is actually an animated picture good thank you disney have been trying in their marketing campaign to hoodwink people into thinking that it's a live action film it is not live action and i'm sorry fully animated what is i'm glad though that uh, taylor was nominated for best original song yeah what is best actor in supporting role like what Uh, brad pitt was nominated that's good tom hanks i'm sorry Anthony Hopkins from The Two Popes. I haven't seen Two Popes, but Brad Pitt, films, Brad Pitt so was good in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So speaking of um, Little Women and Greta Gerwig, yeah. we're, we're doing covering more detail come New Year's, but Chris... Yeah, I got to see um, uh, some previews, and we're covering it now because there's going to be previews over the coming week at all sorts of random times at different cinemas, so Google it. Is <laughs> Orpheum, Palace, all, Ritz, Orpheum. Dendi... Yeah, but at different times. It's basically on various times between... Thursday and next Tuesday or Wednesday, basically, and some screenings over the weekend. Um, I thought this was surprisingly good, um, I, but it feels a little bit too cramped. Um, it's trying to condense a lot of events from not just the first book, Little Women, but also the second book, Good Wives, as well. And sometimes this doesn't work for me because scenes aren't given the dramatic weight that I think they deserve. Um, comparing it to The Irishman, which has a lot of incident and a lot of things going by quickly, um, maybe three and a half hours is part of the, re- the reason for this, but um, and this film running only a little bit over two. But I think Scorsese just has a mastery that you know Greta Gerwig is still up and coming director doesn't quite have yet because a lot of these scenes feel like too light. Um, they're not given the resonance they should have, and at times with a lot of the fast editing and the light music going on in the background, I just kind of didn't feel anchored in this story. But it slows down um, as we settle towards the conclusion and becomes really powerful. Um, it has a beautiful cinematography and a, um, amazing performances across the board. Everyone's fantastic. Um, and there's a real sense of the familial warmth and also just a general warmth towards these characters and towards humanity that comes from this film. I think people are really going to enjoy it. I think after Lady Bird and now with uh, Little Women, I think one of the things that Greta Gerwig has shown is that she has 
she really knows how to write dialogue really well. I mean, realistic dialogue. Um, yeah. What was that film she did with Ethan Hawke that was quite good? Uh, where Francis Ha? No, not Francis Ha. No, it was a. It, it was a fun one. A couple of years ago at the Sydney Film Festival. Um, not a great plot, but great dialogue, great individual Look, sequences. This film, great I think, is, is a step forward from Lady Bird as far as Greta Gerwig as a filmmaker goes. Even if I didn't think that some of the concessions, which I think I'd, were designed to modernise this, feel, this film and make it a, appeal to a contemporary audience, always worked, um, I think most of what it does shows that she's a very confident, yeah. competent filmmaker. And yeah, I, I'm looking forward to discussing it in more detail come its release. So um, that's Little Women. Uh, it's in preview screenings over the coming week. We have one I, more film. I just said before, I have uh, one question, because uh, everyone's been asking me, when I talked to Little Women about this, how, do, how does it compare in, what, in any respect to the 90s version? Because that is still very fresh in people's minds. It's a very different take because it uses a nonlinear time uh, uh, structure, basically. It's cutting back and forth in time, um, which sometimes I think gives it great emotional power. Basically, everything falls into place in the third act. But early on, I wasn't so sure about it. So that's Little Women. Okay. And our film of the week, which I'm yet to see. Um, it's not getting a release as I understand it, but I am. I do want to see it. Yeah. And I want to see it you at can the earliest opportunity. See, if you seek this film out, you can see it. Um, it's Woody yeah. Allen's new film. It doesn't have a distributor in Australia, but it's been released in Europe already. And it's coming to Blu-ray soon, I believe. A Rainy Day in New York. A Rainy Day in New Timothy York. Chalamet, Rebecca Hall... Um, Elle Fanning Selena Gomez Jude Law Yeah And uh, Liev Schreiber And Liev Schreiber yeah. I, I actually found this to be One of his best films in quite a while um, And it's strange that it's not getting a release When a lot of his Not so good films Have <laughs> got a release yeah, I okay. saw Scoop okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, Over let's, the last 10 let's years Let's get or this so. out of the way This film is So funny it is so so funny right off the bat right from the very first dialogue the voiceover is funny everything works and it's got a very self-aware tonality to it which i was very surprised uh that the film carries chalamet is the perfect woody allen film protagonist yes. because he strikes the balance between neurotic and self-aware he's basically playing woody allen he has he, he is as doing a very most of his movies yeah. yeah he is doing a very bang on woody allen impression in his voiceover <laughs> and the kind of stop start <laughs> intonation of his dialogue yeah um but yeah he's the perfect kind of vessel for him with his kind of um artsy nonchalant um wimpy kind of <laughs> wimpy is very the, different to the is. king but but, right. but also at the, at the same time it, it was also very interesting to see when when Alan actually is able to write self-aware dialogue, he is so funny. It this reminded me of the time when, you know, back in the 70s, like why this his style of comedy really took off because it's actually very stand-up-y, like the shtick really works. Yeah, there's, there's definitely the some... freshness to it. There's definitely some lines in here that hark back to his stand-up. There's some... He's still just brilliant at coming up with these one-liner witticisms. There's a line in here about like Time Flies Coach, yes. which is <laughs> just, just so simple, but it killed me. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting. His... Comedy, I think, has veered less away from the realism and more into like really broad and cartoonish kind of styles in recent years. This type film, he has the kind of self-awareness to just go with it and make that work. Um, the, but what it comes down to is that it's a movie made up of conversations and the conversations are engaging and funny. Um, Vittorio Storaro obviously brings beautiful cinematography once again, um, but some of the way that, it's, that the sequences are constructed in terms of the, the direction and, and the, cam you know, the camera placement... Um, the way they flow out is really elegant. Um, like Chamelay at the piano yeah. in the middle. And, oh, yeah, it's and beautiful. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, right? But also I think Alan has the self-awareness to actually parody 
his own kind, the kind of rich elite, yeah. which he's taking a pot shot as as well. He is. And the movie's also about how New York is changing, um, his view of New York and, and the idea of New York that the, the these Woody Allen type characters Very live in. Yeah. yeah, versus how it how it is now with, you know, the different kind of wealth coming into it and, and the way the neighborhoods are being redistributed. All of these things are just touched on in subtle ways. He's just trying to make an entertaining film, I think, and I think it works really well. The one thing that lets it down, I think, is the ending. For me, I was okay with it, but it definitely just feels like a shrug. Like um, a lot yeah. of them are. Yeah. What um, the Mikey Phoenix from a couple of years ago? Irrational even, man. Even the yeah, Christina God. Barcelona. Yeah, it just feels all like the, like the match points had yeah, just a lackluster. Feels like he churns, ending. That's right. It just feels like he churns films out, so he just um, there's it's a, it's a New York theater style. If you just want to, you know, wrap it up. Yep, neatly. it's done. You know, so we basically the events that happen should happen, but to just suddenly happen the way they do is pretty unsatisfying. Um, It could have been much better. Give a shout out to Elle Fanning, who was fantastic in this. Playing against type. Playing very against type. Not the Neon Demon. I was very happy with that. Yep. That was a great movie. So that is The Ready Day Day in New York. Um, It is available in Europe. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) As I was in, I remember the Woody Allen Film Festival in Berlin. I managed to catch a bunch of his older films, and I think that's playing again. This will definitely play there. Mm. There are. Judge Rabbit is in cinemas come Boxing Day. We will go, if you listen to our podcast, we're going to go a little bit over time to discuss some of our feelings about the humor, which has been the largest area of controversy about Jojo Rabbit. Yep. When is it too soon? How Are they approaching Holocaust-related material correctly, etc.? Um, Little Women is in cinemas come the beginning of the year. We'll be doing an, uh, we'll talk about a more GTL come then. But there are previews over the coming week. Golden Globes we will be discussing again next year in the context of awards season and next week is our second to last episode because we are reviewing the biggest film of the year it's not Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker it's Cats it's Cats we're covering Cats the Jericho Cats will come out tonight we will cover Cats it's going to be ridiculous best original song nominated by Taylor yes yeah. very very good and we will also be talking Star Wars speculation because The Rise of Skywalker will premiere later that night we'll also review the next Jumanji Yes, and if you listen, and then following that, we're going to do a early morning live. We'll put it on the podcast, but Rise of Skywalker, fresh without having seen the internet, just what we think. It's going to be a fun, caffeinated morning. This yep. has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Right in the Room. Listen to the podcast. Stay tuned for the Sonic Sets. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify. Have a good night. Enjoy movies. Good night. Good night. Bye. And welcome back to Film Fuck Club, where we are extending our discussion on Taika Waititi's new film, Jojo Rabbit, which will be in cinemas come Boxing Day. We wanted to touch on a little bit more of the humor in the film and what it is pursuing. Now, to be very clear, there are two distinct and contentious types of humor, one of which we, worth of which we've referenced throughout the discussion. One is how they lamp, how Waititi and others have lampooned the far right, or specifically Nazis. The other is dealing with humor surrounding the Shah, or the um, non-Hebrew, which is the Holocaust. Now, these Mel Brooks, for, for instance, uh, in the, with the producers, 40 years ago, only 20 years after the conclusion of the Second World War, um, opened up what, for, po- for popular audiences, this form of humor. And it can trace a lot of this back to the producers. I'm saying specifically to lampooning the far right and Nazis. Mel Brooks uh, famously said that he will not touch Shoah-related humor. Um Many directors have gone in different directions for either. Life is Beautiful, which Chris and I have been discussing for air, certainly goes um, to extents with both. And you know what's interesting is Mel Brooks obviously pioneered Hitler-related comedy and hated Life is Beautiful. 
Yes. For uh, reasons I agree with him on, but it, that's another discussion. I'm not as critical as this film as Brooks. I think the third act is the weakest. Um, however, I quite liked the romance um, that wasn't throughout and the very final sequence in the film. Twatiti pursues both forms of humor throughout, more explicitly lampooning Nazis, but the fact that one of the central characters, Thomas McKenzie, is a Jewish character, um, and it does touch to a great extent on Holocaust-related humor, as does um, an example of another text that pursues both is South Park. South Park would uh, touch on both. Uh, many directors and performers have both directions, and if we take them differently, it's a separately, Waititi succeeds and falters uh, for both forms of humor in different respects. I liked, as has been discussed, how some of the more outlandish performers, particularly Rockwell, dealt with um, humor lampooning Nazis, but it's a very different matter when, say, the opening the introduction to Thomas and Mackenzie character is a a very blatant parody of horror films where, like, she's the girl from The Ring, she's crawling around the wall. And Which, yes, we want to be clear, it's mental lampoon. He's uh, it's Jojo to, Rabbit's yeah, hysteria jo- as opposed the, to... For the rec- but... Johannes Beststruff. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the movie's called Jojo Rabbit, but that's a name people use to make fun of him. Sorry, yeah, we should... Uh, Johannes, <laughs> yes, fair. fair. But, but uh, yeah, that is lampooning, as you say, his perspective, you know, because he believes all these ridiculous things about, you know, like Jews have mind powers and they live in caves and drink blood and that sort of thing. But look, the film was going there for this very obvious parallel that Jojo has a deformity that he gets, uh, well, you know, uh, because of an accident. Oh, man, you're reminding me of something that annoyed me about the film, which uh, is kind no, of no, tangential no, we, to we, this. We, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that. But, you know, it's going for the very obvious parallel where Jojo has a physical uh, deformity b- b- because of an accident which is basically mirroring the kind of uh, images that people are talking about the Jews and the kind of uh, deformity that they attribute to perceptions of Jews it also parallels the, the Sam Rockwell character very explicitly yes. who I do think has the best arc in this film yes it's saying that no these people aren't at like that it's and which isn't so much a form of humor per se, but it is highlighting the absurdist images of Jews. And certainly there's the drawing of what the Jewish figure with horns and a few other things, yeah. um, which contrasts very heavily with the image we see of the Mackenzie character, yeah. Elsa. But the, but by focusing so much on that, um, this goes back to what I was saying earlier in the show about the comedy being too much like make, reassuring the audience and making them feel smug about um, you know knowing more than Nazis did. By focusing Borat does it too in that way. Borat pursues the same sort of humor. What does, sorry? Uh, as in trying to say, um, you know, going to the absurdist images of Jury Patel. Oh, Borat, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just um, saying, yeah, we're, we know yeah. that you're in on the joke with us. Yeah. Which, is, which can be fine. It can be fine. I think, um, yes, that ki- this kind of absurd imagery of Jewish people was put out by the Nazis, but it's not... Is put out, but... Or it was historically well, in the context yeah. of the film, but yes, it's still, yes. Yeah, but um, there are lots of people who... Um, knew that being Jewish doesn't make you like a, a literal monster. So to f- focusing on so much on that aspect of like, aren't they idiots? They thought that they believed all this this ridiculous stuff about Jewish people. Which yeah, it's from a child perspective, but focusing so much on that is hand in hand with what I was saying about letting Nazis off the hook a little bit. By um, it's you know it's more interesting to say okay, people, you know did know that the Jewish people are just humans and they hated them because they bought into ridiculous economic arguments, for example, right? Like, that's more in tune with how 
hate is still being stoked today yeah. and the film just kind of swerves away from that to reassure the audience for being smarter than that there's a couple of co- uh, more subtle comments about communism to that effect in the film too. yeah I, I don't i'm not uh, yeah i i don't think that the film completely avoids depicting how people are programmed and um how people are pressured but i think it just veers too far in the other direction of um cheap laughs when this this is kind of you know is really serious thing um but anyway for right what did you think yeah i mean the point and it's i think it's a very serious point when you come from humor is like the film doesn't know what it needs to do when it's looking at adult perspectives and when it gets away from jojo's perspective which yeah. is clear you know which is fine but when it comes to adult perspective let's say sam rockwell's perspective or rebel wilson's perspective or even stephen merchant's perspective and Scarlett Johansson's perspective. There are enough adult perspectives in the film, and the film doesn't know how to treat these adult people as serious human beings and where they stand with the ideology that they're supposed to be functioning with and living with on a daily basis. I mean, this is a very diabolical world. Yeah, because... And a, and a society which where you get to see a lot of har- harrowing things on yeah. a daily basis, which is just pointed out in a lot of... A few scenes. Yeah, because for the most part, the adults are buffoons. But that's for the, the most part. But that's the sense. thing, and that is the biggest problem with the film. I'm okay with it if it's from a child's perspective, where the adult world seems buffoonish. Mm. I get that, but I'm not comfortable with the fact that to buy into this idea that the adults see each other as buffoons, mm. because they don't. In fact, with most of the films, the adults are quite self-aware of what they're doing, and they still do it. And I think the film is not brave enough to point out this underlying issue that the adults are quite knowingly doing these things and not sure right. how to deal with that. Okay, I think here you need to look at how these figures are portrayed at different points in the film. Um, take the example, moving away from the of Second World War, the film we reviewed last year, Black Klansman, which dealt with some very serious and still prominent far-right figures. Um, the Topher Grace depicted... I, I praised his performance last year. I stand by that. He, he depicted uh, the figure as killer, mockingly and as a matter of figure of parody, but then there were key scenes where they showed just how sinister he was, including one sequence where the Dev Washington character took a photo with him and he says, words to the effect of, you know what we do to people like you, where I come from. Um, the producers, to go back to the classic example, is the whole springtime for Hitler is an abject parody, but then there is a moment where we first meet the guy who wrote Springtime for Hitler, and it is a yes, it's a funny scene, but it's highlighting just how, um, just how terrible this person actually is. Yeah. Jojo Rabbit, for the most part, deals with scenes which are parodic of Nazis. I don't think there's a moment in the film where you see a really sinister. Yes, yes, it's all sinister, but you don't see a really, a predominantly dramatic sinister portrayal. Now, the, the, I, I with the one of the more popular, well-known depictions of Nazis in modern cinema is. Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade. I'll focus on Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, a brilliant film, which we've actually never spoken about, I don't think. And in that, um, also, Nazis, people they're depicted as bad people, as figures of parody, and as opportunistic. There is the figure I referred to earlier with the coat hanger, who um, is probably the most serious figure. There's still a bit of a figure of parody. Um, however... There's, I don't think even in this... What's, what Jojo Rabbit is similar to Raiders of the Lost Ark is that there is no 
um, you know, Ray Fiennes type figure of the visit she had in Schindler's List. Mm. And that's, I think, Steven Spielberg in Red is the Lost Ark struck the right balance. He was showing a thriller, but he was, it was very clear throughout how soon as these figures were. Cause, but also, this film gave us a, a lot of important historical context. I think Jojo Rabbit pursues and does to a great effect, but I, I don't think there was, a, a, as, may, as, as may be necessary, a really sinister moment specifically involving these far-right figures. There are moments where we see their acts and what they do, but there may have been something, I, and it's something I need to reflect on, but it's something that may have been lacking from this movie. It's something that Clarissa pointed out, which is the problem with the humour that I have, is that it's going for just a cheap laugh. It's, it's The point is, I'm okay with the humour being used, but what is the humour doing apart from the cheap laugh? Yeah. The and that's not much. That's y- my point. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think... A lot of this is fairly typical humor that you'd find in most of Waititi's other films, which is it's sort of Napoleon Dynamite derived almost. Like it's very dumb. Um, there's a lot of focus on puns, weird sight gags, um, characters being foolish with a kind of slightly dry uh, tone. Looking at that, um, but yeah, this is a film about a really, really dark, really, really serious historical context. I'm not here to say that's outside the limits of comedy. I don't, I don't think it should no, be. I don't no, think anything necessarily is. I agree. It's not. Um, but for me, a lot of the time, this dumb comedy doesn't really have a point to it. And it's yeah. a bit, little bit strange to be just pursuing easy, dumb kind of laughs in this context. The times for me that the humor in this works the most is it never sacrifices the kind of tone he's going for. I'm not telling him to, you know, not to try and go for um, this style of comedy, but the times where it works best in this film is when um, it's also making some kind of comment on the ethics of the period. And, and, and going back to my later, it doesn't need to be necessarily a sinister portrayal, yeah. but the em- when the emphasis is on the joke and the parody rather than the effect, I think there's a great moment yeah. towards the end of the film with Rebel Wilson. Yes, uh, I'm uh, thinking of that. That was my favorite joke in the film because um, we won't say what it is for people who haven't seen it, but a joke near the end of the movie. Um, and that wasn't signposted. Once yeah. again, a lot of the jokes were so signposted, yeah. and this just That's came right. out of it, it, and it had such an it, impact. It surprised yeah. um, because it it's kind of silly humor. Um, it's, it, it keeps Waititi's goofiness, but at the same time, it's hinting at something really dark about the situation. Um, as you say, Glenn, it's about the effect, not just the joke for its own sake. And... I think if you're going to make a movie about this context, you have to be ready to do that with the humor. And there is another moment, and we're not going to talk about it because it is a major turning point in the film, but it's a very dramatic moment. Actually, my favorite in the movie it involves a pair of shoes, Yep. and it's very powerful. It's, it's, it is signposted, but not in a way that you necessarily see it coming. It's and, a surprise, yeah. And it's a surprise. And again, this speaks to the dramatic bona fides of the film as opposed to its comedic attributes but i felt but the, i had difficulty engaging even with that moment i think dramatically because i the tone of this film kind of had me disengaged from the drama like the way that it undermines itself with these kind of like dumb gags for their own sake i think yeah. i think maybe that's part of the reason why i never fully engaged dramatically like it for me there's just a bit of a strange tonal discordance yeah, every time taco Waititi comes in like as i said he's not technically bad he's just not essential to the movie yeah, yeah he, I, he's playing it at a different it's, tone and it's, it's kind of the marketing gimmick isn't it like 
the first thing we all heard about this movie is Taika like Waititi's Taika Waititi Hitler. plays Hitler. Ha, what? Ha. How crazy! Yeah. And then the beyond, it doesn't really go beyond that in the movie. Yeah, it just it becomes it's there for cheap gags. There's one time when there's just a brief little moment where you see Hitler Waititi swimming by um, in a pool, and it I just cringed when I saw it. I just thought that's just such a dumb. I'm just, I get it. He's he look at how wacky Hitler is, you know, um, how naughty of them. I get it by now, and it's like I'm in editing. They must have realized how bad that gag was because they cut away from it after like a sp- it being on screen for a split second. And to talk about the tonal shift, the actually we haven't spoken about is Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones, who again is operating a whole different register to everyone else. I do appreciate that this character and a few others. Um, except we've talked about um what Jews experience during the world. We have, but another major issue or other major issues is persons who are handicapped or persons who are queer of LGBTI background or who are both jewish and also of who are, are, are handicapped and this is something that is touched on in the film that's important and a lot of the fil- films that cover this era comedy or otherwise don't talk about this important historical context mm. and i appreciated that even if i think alan's performance and a number of others were operating at unnecessarily an unnecessarily different tone and distinct massively distinct tone for everyone else it's like you got everyone and said you're a good comic actor do your thing but remember this is all it's all it, it feels like a big compilation of sketch comedy because they all yeah. come at different points there's not an ensemble as such yes um johannes has great interactions with rosie but Otherwise, it's here's your here's this scene with these characters. Yeah, it feels disconnected. It's like a, I think that's why it feels overstuffed to me because it doesn't feel it's a like it's belt. got. Yeah, it's a conveyor belt of characters going past Johannes. This is that is a that's how it's written th- and that is a problem. That that's the reason I think why um, when I was saying earlier that it feels overstuffed to me because it doesn't feel like there's a dramatic center that gets more and more developed over the course of the film because a lot of these characters don't really have that big a uh, role on Johannes's uh, transformation his you know being deprogrammed which is the point of the film really and it seems to just sort of happen yeah. and you know all the other characters are more interesting rosie is such a more interesting character yeah. because of the position she's in and she's only has the relationship he has with the same character and others because um you know they're they think she's cute and they want to spend time with her mm. okay and, well i'll talk about my favorite scene and i think it's it's different in a sense and it kind of points out some things that do work because the, it's not that bad a film as much as we're making it out to be. My favorite scene in the film is when Scarlett Johansson's character gets to play act a scene. Oh, yeah. Glenn, Glenn alluded to it earlier. With, yeah. an, with an absent uh, figure. And uh, it's that level of actual physicality and, and genuine humor, uh, which, is, which is not signpost. Pantomime. for a gag. But it's also yeah. digging... But it's, not, but it's not a gag because no. it's actually... Yeah. It's endemic it to the situation. Yeah, linking it, it back to emotion and linking it back to an actual situation it's also and making a point. Digging yeah. into the character in a way that most of the film is not. Yeah, like it's re- digging into characters and their relationship, um, where most and, of the film as and it's, it's a beautiful fairly scene deep. of like you know, actually showboating. I mean that that range of Scarlett Johansson just changing guard and really showing off, but how her range is. It, it's fantastic, and once again because. In that kind of moment, you don't often see mainstream actors getting that kind of screen space where they get to be pantomime. I think pantomime, in that sense, is kind of uh, almost gone off, you know, off screen. We we don't get to see those moments at all. Scarlett Johansson's great. Yeah, Johansson's great. Um, um, there's a few more things about. Okay, basically, my issue is that this film feels reassuring and safe in a lot of ways for what it is. Like it it 
tries to deal with, um, to some extent, it deals with the darkness of the period and the atrocities being committed, but at such a safe distance. And it, it feels like it never really wants to disturb the audience that much. Um, just a little minor example. In the context of the movie, they talk about how, you know, um, there's gags about how Jojo's face is so disfigured and he'll scare people and he looks so ugly, but he basically looks like a cute child actor with a few little pink marks on his face. Yeah. It, he's, he doesn't, he his attractiveness... Looks, he never is, looks yeah, actually disfigured. His attractiveness is not uh, affected really at it's all. It's the sort of thing that's... I mean, it's... Typical a, Hollywood. It, it's not... Yes, he does have a few more scars than when the I'm about to refer to, but it's sort of thing that was parodied in Zoolander 2. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you're he's so still, he still looks like Awful. Blue Steel. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he still <laughs> looks like an attractive child actor, and I think that's just kind of representative of the way that the film operates. Yeah, it never wants to unsettle yeah. you. And this, like maybe this isn't what's the Tom Cruise character in um, Valkyrie? This isn't that like that. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying you need to make a totally different film. I'm open to a goofy comedy yeah. set in in Germany during World War II, and what with the backdrop of the Holocaust. I think that I think that's a that's a really potentially interesting idea. Yeah. It's just that I think you need to be um, ready to get your hands dirty as a director a bit and maybe make the audience a little bit uncomfortable because this should be unsettling. And I think the film's not ready to go there. Um, it, like it's so just kind of reassuring in terms of like I'm not going to spoil it, but the way that this movie plays out, it reminds me of a Kubrick quote that he apparently said about Schindler's List. He had been planning to make a Holocaust movie, so he was really caught up in the idea for years, and he saw Schindler's List and liked it and decided it wasn't so urgent. Um, so, But he said, apparently, to... Um, I can't remember who he said it to, actually, but it was reported... Spielberg, maybe? No, he, he and Spielberg were friends, but no, he was talking to somebody else. Um, he said, my big issue with Schindler's List is that the Holocaust was about six million Jews dying, and Schindler's List was about however many thousand it was, you know, people being saved. His approach, I think, is he wanted to make a really crushingly dark film about the Holocaust... Um, but going into Jojo Rabbit, to make a movie about an Anne Frank type scenario and make something so reassuring out of it, yeah, it, it's, it's all about strange. hope in the end. It's yeah, all about, it's all know, about everything's going to be okay. Yeah, the, the audience I think definitely comes out with the feeling that yeah. everything's going to be okay. Which because even I, at the timeline, yeah, at, at the timeline the movie ends, because you know all about everything. People did get but saved. Yeah, like, you know, to yeah. compare it to Schindler, exactly like to compare it to Schindler's List. Schindler's List is also about hope. Schindler's List is a very different film, granted, but that's also about hope, but doesn't shy away from the tragedy of the situation in the way that I kind of feel like this look, one does. If you're looking for, I, I don't think a film's mission is necessarily to educate, but mm. if you're looking for the important historical context from films like Schindler's List, and I would say Life is Beautiful to an extent, and many others um, who deal with this from, much more, from a dramatic perspective and a more historical perspective, this is not that film. And it's not a criticism; it's just a fact. Yeah, I'm, I mean, and I'm, we're not saying that films need to educate. Yeah, like it's not that it needs has to, to, to be educate, something else. But all we're saying is that if you're going to pick up a subject like that, you need to do the heavy lifting. You can't. Yeah. You you need to put in the effort to make sure you're giving it the due and diligence. That yeah, it but, uh, I have to ask: Are you talking about this in terms of giving broader historical context? No, no because no, just in terms of even if even in terms of humor, if you're going to do that, the humor has yeah. to have some weight to it, I, yeah, and not just go for cheap laughs. I agree. I think the idea of doing a Napoleon Dynamite esque comedy um, crossed with a drama set during the Holocaust is something where it's like you've got to convince me that that on paper sounds like a bad idea. So you, you have to show that you're willing yeah. to do and cross that, bring the darkness into the yeah, comedy, as opposed to like it just feels kind of cowardly to make a, a movie with this backdrop and just go for like 
this is wacky kind it, of stuff. Yeah. It does it a few times. Um, it does and to show how enough. humor it can be effective, I'll use the example of Life is Beautiful, and I'm going to ruin the end of the film. I guess most people have seen it. Um, Spoilers you, for Life is Beautiful. You can look at the sequences in the camp versus the sequence where the kid sees the tank, which is a very funny sequence. But uh, works great effect. I agree. There is tragedy and, in that. I, I hate Life is Beautiful. We won't get into that. But I agree. That moment, it's funny and tragic. And you know what? The ending it, of it's dealing with the seriousness of the situation. And we can get into the ending of Life is Beautiful. Um, I really like the final moments of the film. There is a key pivotal moment in this where it goes to similar beat. As has been said, it goes for a uplifting tone, ultimately. Chris and I were talking about this the moment we finished watching the film. I like this. I don't have a problem with films. I think the song choice in this instance was unwarranted, for and this song has been overused. For me, it goes into that kind of um, ironic distance that I don't like, given the historical context we're in now. Like, it, it's part of Waititi brings his his same kind of like um, making a fun movie, music cues, winks to the audience kind of vibe, and it's just like it sits so wrong with me to kind of wrap the film up on that note, which is what he chooses to do. I disagree. I don't think he's doing that at all. I think it's a moment of extreme catharsis amid great sadness, which many would have experienced um, the historical concept we're standing at that time and certainly do and can still relate to um, following this period. On paper, I agree with you, but in the context of the film, it just came across as... To me, it felt shallow and audience pandering. I think it, I, I think the song choice didn't help that and does support your argument. But And I think, honestly, if you'd taken the song out and just had them doing what they were doing at that instance, it would have worked to a much greater effect. I do think the moment of catharsis overrides um, how hackneyed the delivery, some of the delivery was, and I prefer specifically the song choice here, but I don't think it was a bad creative choice. But but that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's not about the humour. It's not about uh, what you do with it. It's basically the approach towards it. I mean, if you are going to prioritize the cheap gags uh, for the majority, then even if when you're going for the sincere moment, that it will kind of feel half-hearted. You it know, did with Sam it's Rockwell. Dif- it's difficult to buy into that because you've not set it up properly. You know, And when those moments come, they don't have the desired impact because you've not done the groundwork to lay them and give them the proper heft that they need because you've only been going for cheap laughs for so long. Let's be very clear. Uh, the, the, the moments, the cheap laughs, as, we, as has been referred to, they're not treated as a reprieve. They're consistent throughout. Yeah, Honestly, yeah. and I've said this, we've said this before. It's a tonal it, it, issue. It, if, if you took the Watiti character out and just had Rockwell and Wilson being these little moments of comic relief amid a much more stronger focus on what made this film, was, the film was at its greatest with the drama, it probably would have worked a lot better or if um, Watiti honestly had been in it for less. I mean, then we're discussing a film that would have been rather than the film that we actually yeah. got. So, so that, like, you know, yeah. that's not something that we can but discuss. Uh, wait, wait, I said it simply because a lot, most of the, a lot of the Waititi scenes didn't have yeah. the impact but, that you but honestly I think hoped that, it would. that's also the trademark Waititi touch, right? If you take Waititi out of the film, it's not a Waititi movie. Absolutely not true. I His best film was Hunt for the Wilder People. Which is... But, you, but that, that film very much strongly has his touch and the humour, though. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, but that's the thing, you know. Are, are we saying that I think somebody probably else needed to make that's this that's movie? That's not me saying I don't want to see him in movies. I like seeing him in movies. I just yeah. cr- am critical I, of how he was placed in this film. I think outside of his performance, I think he just needed to evolve as a director more than he did to tackle this subject matter. I think maybe yeah. maybe he, at this point in his career, was not ready to take on a film yeah. about I mean, something this serious. It's still not a, not a bad film. It just needed better execution, if it was. Yeah, it's, it's perfectly entertaining. Yeah. I'm glad I saw it. 
there's a few bits I would heavily criticize, but it's I don't think it's a bad film. No, I just think it, the, the awards buzz is not merited. It yeah, I I think it's a it's in with a chance to win Best Picture. Honestly, it's one of those movies that could sneak out of nowhere. Oh, this year there's not going to be a single front runner. It's going to be a 2015 situation like Spotlight, and I honestly don't Spotlight think Spotlight big surprise winner. I don't, I, don't, I I saw it coming. It, okay. It's yeah, honestly. Sorry, that's me to my own home, but it did look. You you just it was the consensus pick. And there's going to be a consensus pick this year. There's going to be another Shape of Water, which everyone can just kind of, oh, we all mostly like this movie. Parasite. It's winning everything. Parasites. Oh, it would be, I, it'd it be would incredible. It would be a huge moment for a, an Asian film. But like, it's actually to practically win winning, sweeping everything, which is great. Both I don't think it will actually win. I think it'll just come close. I think so. Okay, let's bet on that. But like, yeah, I would reserve <laughs> my comments until I see Little Women and um, 1917 and no, a few no, other key no, films. That's fine. Like, I, I know what should win, but I think what would win is yeah. Parasite. I think you know, there's two different conversations. Yeah, I Technically, what should win is Portrait of a Lady, which is not even nominated in the Best Picture. I, <laughs> I, don't, really I just don't think that... Um, <laughs> <sighs> this could yeah. do very well. Because yeah. like, because look, I, I know we are happy that Parasite is being nominated in the mainstream category and not foreign language. Yeah. And that is a big win. That in itself is the victory. I, I think, don't think yeah. so. I, I think we need to I go think, further. No, look, that. I think it's like Roma last year. Roma was, was doing really, really well. But at the end of the day, if it's not an American it, film, no, it's, it's just still, very it's hard still, to win Best no, Picture. It's still Bong, Bong Joon-ho could still win Best Director. It's still going to be a bigger deal. You're right. That could happen. You know, that could that Kuron, could easily happen. Because he's, he's less well-known than Quran. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that it could it could happen. I'll and, grant you that. And he doesn't have Netflix's backing. True. So, either Bong Joon Ho winning Best Director or Parasite winning Best Picture in the mainstream category, could, not, not in foreign language. Could be two Scarlet films competing for it. Jojo and Marriage Story. Marriage Story. Yeah. yeah. Honestly. Look, if Bambak wins Best Director and Parasite wins Best Picture, I will. I would love Bambak winning Best Director, but I think it's, it's going to be. It's, it's going to be probably it's Bong Joon Ho. It's a Ling problem with like Boyhood. Uh, yeah, and Ling later not winning. I, I think it would be. Pro- I think it's probably going to be Bong Joon Ho, but maybe, maybe Scorsese and maybe Tarantino. No, we'll but see. That's we'll the see. thing. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I can see the merits of that, but I don't think those were as well directed films. Bong is just such an incredible technician. I think, like, I think it, it's just uh, hard to deny it, how well the, he the guides you through the narrative and, and it's a freshness to it, sets up. And you know what? Fresh, it yeah. looks better. It just simply l- not is simply is better, but it looks crisper both, and both cleaner. Both and Tarantino are, are giving you a kind of vibe, which is talking back to what they've already done. Bong yeah. Joon-ho in that way is still experimenting with form, yeah, and also with with genre. I mean, all his films technically are different in style and execution and genre. But they have they have a, u- a unique touch. Yes. Yeah, they have a defining feel. Part which part of that is the way that he experiments with genre. It's yeah. like you go to a Bong film, you know that there's going to be some twists in it and it's going to be hard to peg down exactly what genre of film you watched because. He just okay, likes so telling stories and playing so with the we audience. So we think his style is that his he deliberately experiments with style, and that's yeah. his style. Yeah. Wow. And we're we counting that uh, against yeah. him. Uh, no, no, <laughs> I'm not counting that against him. I think, I think, um, I think what defines Bong's films a lot of the time is like moments of horror that surprise you in a non-horror film context. And, and I, I, I would guess, say that's one guess, of his trademarks. And, and I guess right now that's still fresh. It or is fresh. More fresh than. Scorsese's style or Tarantino, which we've seen time and time again, or at least the Academy's familiar with it. I, I think Tarantino is pushing things a little bit in this film with how much time he gave over to silences and how, how much mm. he allowed it to okay. 
be an antidote to the thrill a minute. Talking about silence, yeah. I would have been happier if Scorsese went for silence than the Irishman. I would too. I but would too there's always the silence was the that movie was that was always too Glenn good. Glenn mentioned. Yes, that's right. As Glenn <laughs> mentioned earlier, there's always a film that's too good to win, yeah. and yeah, silence. Call by your name. Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, yeah. Not call me by your name. No, Absolutely. no, that's not by your name. We, we, we've covered this. It's, it's, <laughs> actually, it's great. Actually, we should fight about that. We, we I, have I, thought about it. It's I a great yeah. movie. I hate that movie. That's a horrible movie. Anyway, well, Vart's well, 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 uh, definitely in the minority on this, and uh, we've, we have discussed. You can go back to look at our old episodes Portrait on of Lady of Fire, the definitive uh, LGBTQ movie. You know, romance. I, of this th- we're not going to get into this now because because we're all tired. Two but very good ones. I don't even like that movie that much. And more than two. That's my blasphemy for the night. It's okay. So we'll be back next week <laughs> with Cats from Tongue Tugger and whatever they're all called. Yay, Cats. Jumanji. Jumanji. And Last Minute Star Wars hype. Yes. Have a wonderful night. We will be back with all things Star Wars cats, and Cats. Jumanji and may, 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 um, may the, the force, force be, be with, with you, you always. always. <laughs> uh, with love from Taylor Swift. Good night.